Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about social chemistry and the cancer community with Dr. Marissa King. Dr. King is a professor of organizational behavior at the Yale School of Management, and Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. So um, for all of our listeners, you may not know this, but I did my MBA at Yale School of Management. And one of the classes that I took was actually your class, Marissa, on social networking. And it got me to thinking that there's a lot of aspects that um, are pertinent in terms of social networking when we think about the cancer community. I know that many people think about social networking in business, kind of having relationships and and how they can build on that in terms of their network and finding jobs and climbing the corporate ladder. But for cancer patients, I think that that's also true. Have you kind of thought about that or what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. We oftentimes think of the idea of networking, and for many people, that idea in and of itself is just morally off-putting. There's kind of a feeling of like, oh, this is icky, or it doesn't apply. And part of that is people are oftentimes having in mind an idea of a very instrumental type of networking, and particularly professional networking. So the idea that they're going to try to meet someone to get something in a professional context. And we know from a lot of research that that oftentimes is really off putting to people and impedes their ability to form effective networks. And what I've shown in my research and what I think is important to understand is the difference between networks and networking. So we all have networks. Our networks are simply the traces of interaction that we have on a daily basis. It's the person you've bumped into in a coffee shop, your relationship with your physician, your more enduring relationships with your closest friends and family. So all of us have networks and those networks have profound implications. They are a strong determinant of emotional well-being and support. They also impact our physical health and well-being. The type of network you have is a strong predictor of premature mortality. And they certainly also impact our professional success. But when thinking about the cancer community, it's really important to understand that your network has extraordinary implications for your uh, emotional support support, your ability to help others, and also your ability to get information that you may need and navigate um, the situation that you're facing. So thinking about the idea of your own network, it's really important to try to understand what are your current strengths? How might your network be changing as you're navigating a cancer diagnosis? And how can you build a more effective network to help you meet the demands that you're currently facing? Yeah, I I love that concept because <clears throat> as we know, you know, so many people who um when faced with a cancer diagnosis, it's kind of this, you know, just been splashed with cold water um you know, deer in headlights look of, "Oh my gosh, what just happened to my life?" And I find that 
oftentimes people, when faced with that diagnosis, will start looking to their network, um, to their friends, their next door neighbor, um, people at church, people in their their work context who may have had the same experience. And from that, they start gleaning information that helps to um, kind of inform some of the decisions that they make. But talk a little bit more about how that works, because I find that Part of it might be that patients, some patients are very good at that and they're very open with their diagnosis and they talk to almost everybody that they can find um, who can kind of give them some more advice and guidance and tell them about their experience. Other people, on the other hand, really try to keep that very much to themselves. How does um, that work? And if you're having difficulty kind of um, engaging your network, what advice do you have for people? It's a really important point that you make. And what's interesting is we know that oftentimes when people are faced with a crisis, whether that's uh, the pandemic itself, after what happens after Hurricane Katrina, or for instance, what happens after a diagnosis, when people are in a moment of crisis or uncertainty, networks actually in general, tend to what we call turtle in. People tend to gravitate to the people that are they're closest to, their inner circle, the people that they tend to rely on routinely for help or support. Um, for most people, this is around two to five people. And our networks really focus on this inner circle. And in many ways, this is makes perfect sense. It's highly adaptive in the sense it's really from your inner circle that you get the strongest emotional and social support. The challenge with that natural tendency that happens for so many people is exactly the flip side of this that you pointed to, Anise, is that many times when we're trying to navigate a diagnosis, we really need new information. And we also may be looking for someone who has a shared experience that wouldn't be in this inner circle. And just probabilistically, that's quite unlikely. And because we all have a certain amount of time and a certain amount of cognitive energy, we really have to be cognizant about these trade-offs. Are we focusing really on our inner circle or are we reaching out to people who could provide new information, who may be able to have a similar experience that we wouldn't normally talk to? And so this natural tendency to turtle in and focus in on our inner circle, while it's adaptive from an emotional standpoint, it can have pretty significant drawbacks in terms of information seeking. And so you ask an important question, which is, okay, given this natural tendency, what does this mean for how you can navigate this moment? And there's been great work that was done by Ned Smith and Tana Menon, who first identified this, identified this tendency to focus on our inner circle during times of stress and uncertainty. And what they found is that not everyone experiences this, as you mentioned, that it particularly is people who have a sense of a lack of control that tend to focus in on this inner, in this inner circle. And if you 
But at the same time, you need new information and you need to be able to identify people who you wouldn't normally talk to to help you through this moment. And in order to think about that part of your network, one of the most powerful things that you can do is actually to try to induce a, a more controlled sense of your environment and yourself. So there are a couple of ways of thinking about doing this. One of the most powerful ways that they found is actually to have a sense of reaffirmation of your own sense of self. So who you are and what you value. And in thinking about that, before you reach out and you think, and before trying to figure out who might be able to help you, it allows you to come, overcome this natural tendency to focus inward when we feel out of control. And reaching outward can be really important for forming new ties, getting new information and navigating a landscape that's really uncertain and new to you. I think that that's so great. But I think the other thing is that, you know, it's sometimes difficult um, because so many cancer patients really do feel out of control in that kind of sense of I'm going to have some self-affirmation about myself and about what I value might be difficult in the moment. But I wonder whether, you know, that inner circle that you turn to, those two to five people they may have a much stronger sense of self and may actually be kind of linkers um, to help you to expand your your circle and provide you a safe space to um, get to information or to connect to other people who might be able to help. Kind of this idea of six degrees of separation. It's a beautiful suggestion and an important one. We And I often think of this as trying to find a network partner. In many circumstances, um, in, there is a patient in this circumstance in particular, you may feel out of control. It may feel very hard to have this sense of uh, self-affirmation and uh, really be able to tap into a sense of stability and control. But instead, if you're able to ask for help and ask for people within your inner circle to reach out to their network, it's extraordinarily powerful. Like if we think about our own network, right? Most people on average have around 600 to 900 people within their network. But if you think about relying on that inner circle, not just the people that you know, all of a sudden you may go from 600 people to 3000 people. And then as you mentioned, right, you think about the number of people that their friends right, are friends with. And then all of a sudden there's extraordinary reach into to the amount of information that you're able to access and potentially being able to identify people who can help you with either the right piece of information or even a shared experience. If I've been through this too, and let me tell you what that experience was like for me. Yeah. You know, and, and as I think about kind of going through that um, cancer experience, there, there are people who you may come in contact with who can link you to other people, right? So, so talking to your doctor or a nurse or a social worker and, and the concept of, of uh, even support groups um, to kind of expand your, your, your circle um, can sometimes be helpful. But I find that there are, again, other people who find that support groups really are not so helpful, particularly when um, people in that support group may have experiences that are not exactly like yours. Um, So, for example, if you have a a diagnosis of an early breast cancer and somebody has metastatic pancreatic cancer and is telling you about their experiences, sometimes that can be... 
actually far more scary um, than having somebody um, in in a support group who really can share experiences that are more uh, in line with what you're going through. But at the same time, some people find that these support groups, regardless of how mixed they are, are still helpful. How would you kind of contextualize that? And and are there are is there a way to kind of think about um, people's own situations and what they would benefit most from, or how they should filter information that they get from their networks? Yeah, I think that that's one of the most challenging pieces when you're trying to think about from a support group standpoint is um, figuring out for you where that boundary lies. And most of the support is, I think one of piece of the support is oftentimes going to come through being able to identify with others in the group and have a, a sense of shared experience. And that in many ways is easier to navigate when you have some a, a group composed of people who are at a similar with a very similar situation right so that they for instance if the group is primarily composed of um, people with early stage breast cancer versus later stage pancreatic cancer that there's going to be it's going to be easier to find those points of identification um, and connection but I think there's also and for people who are sort of particularly feeling uncomfortable with respect to how much that they feel comfortable sharing or disclosing. Uh, people also have very different preferences and tendencies and ability to navigate boundaries about like how much can I hear about someone else's experience while still protecting myself and being able to empathize, um, but not become engrossed in someone else's situation. So those are easier to navigate when you have groups that are more similar um, with respect to where people are with the disease. But other people, if particularly if you have, you know, if you know that that's not a challenge for you, being able to be a part of a broader group um, and just connecting on the, regardless if your, your experience is different from mine, they were all in many ways going through a challenging time and talking about what those challenges are instead of the specifics, the medical specifics can generally be really helpful for everybody. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's it's so cool to think about how social connection really affects the cancer uh, experience. And we're going to um, come back to all of that right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about social chemistry and the cancer community with my guest, Dr. Marissa King. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about head and neck cancers. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers, and in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Marissa King. We're talking about social chemistry and the cancer community. And right before the break, Marissa, we were we were talking about the power of social connection, especially when going through crisis like cancer. Um, and there were a few points that I wanted to just kind of bring up again. One of the things that you mentioned in passing was that there are data that um, social connection can actually affect um, your your longevity. Can you talk more about that? It, I think our interactions in on a moment to moment basis and our ability to connect with one another impacts our physical health. And it does that in many ways through our, what are our stress, through stress in particular. So as humans, we're really built for social connection. And because of that, there are many biomarkers that change when we're in a high quality supportive interaction. For instance, when you're in a supportive interaction, your cortisol levels, which are a biomarker of stress will decrease. And over time, those stress levels, um, whether you're, they're either lower because you're in supportive interactions or they're higher because you're feeling more isolation and loneliness, it's through those channels and it really sets stress as a more intermediate, a more immediate factor that impacts longevity in particular. Yeah, I think that's so so interesting that you bring it back to kind of a biological basis. I mean, we think about how, you know, when um, you get a hug, your your oxytocin levels go up and, and it's kind of that feel good hormone um, that that makes people feel more comfortable, more safe. But I think that now, especially in the pandemic, when we are, you know, physically distancing, um, socially isolating especially for, for people going through cancer, that can be um, particularly problematic and difficult. So even if you have a network, um, if, you, if you can't um, physically engage with that network, what can you do to really reduce some of that stress and still benefit from that social connection? One of the most powerful things that you can do is actually just have a conversation in which you feel heard. And we know that listening has an extraordinarily powerful effect on health and well-being, both physical and mental. There have been clinical trials after clinical trials have shown, in fact, that feeling listened to reduces pain and it also reduces recovery time. And one of the things that for me is so interesting about listening is studies that have asked people whether or not that they feel like they're a good listener. The vast majority of people, 96% of people will tell you that they're a good listener. But most of us, if we've been in conversation, know that that's simply not true. And even for people who do actively think about what they're doing in conversation in terms of listening. Most of the time, there's an emphasis on active listening, asking follow-up questions, you know, perhaps jumping in with your own story, nodding and affirmation. But there's another type of listening that pretends to be, particularly has deep healing effects, and that's deep listening. And in that modality of listening, the idea isn't so much to be engaging with a speaker, but that it's just to give them space. And one of the ways to see how much space that you're giving someone in a conversation, actually, if you just simply ask someone, hey, how are you doing today? 
and let them begin talking. And in the meantime, just be silent and notice what your tendencies are. Do you want to jump in with your own story? Do you want to ask a follow-up question? But just to not do that, not act on that, but just give the other person space. And particularly when people are going through challenging times, in many ways, they just want to be heard. But for a lot of people, there's a tendency to want to give advice. So in conversations, actually even asking someone, um, whether it's a patient or someone trying to support the patient, which also can be a quite difficult role, like, you know, to simply even ask, do you want to just be listened to or do you want advice? And Oftentimes, you'll be amazed how often people will say that they actually just want to be listened to. Yeah, I think that that's so, um, so important because I think we've all been in situations like that where somebody is going through a crisis, whether it's a cancer diagnosis or losing a job or you know, facing another health crisis like COVID. I mean, we've all been through all of those situations, I feel like, in the last year and people just want, they just want to vent. They just want to feel heard. But at the same time, you so want to help. So how, how do you kind of overcome that? Yeah, and, and I, I think that piece about wanting to help, it, right, it's an, it is important to recognize. So if this is your tendency, it's most likely because you actually want to be of help. Um, and so I think asking people at the beginning of a conversation, it, like, do you just want to be heard? Or are you actually seeking advice? Helps both parties set expectations. And the second piece that you are, when you started to mention asking for help, I think particularly during times of crisis, that that's another extraordinarily powerful tool and understanding and being able to differentiate. Like, are you just listening? Are you asking or offering help is really important because those are two very different support functions and asking for help for many people, it's extraordinarily difficult, no matter what the circumstances. But one of the things that I think is powerful to think about in overcoming that resistance is also engaging in perspective taking. So if you're, if you're the person who needs help, if you're the patient or the person who just received a diagnosis and you do feel like you need help, but are reluctant to ask for it, to imagine what it's like to be a on the other side, to be a friend or a family member who so wants to help, but oftentimes doesn't know how. Um, and so imagining that and thinking about you're asking for help is in many ways an opportunity for them to be of service, for them to feel that they have some purpose. Um, and that can be extremely gratifying. So no matter who is asking for help, oftentimes there's a reluctance to do that. But one of the most powerful ways to overcome it is actually to think about what it would be like for the other person to be able to provide help. And particularly in this moment in the pandemic, so many of us need a sense of purpose um, that in many ways that you're giving a gift to the other person. Yeah, I, I think that that is really, really on point because we've all seen it, right? Um, cancer patients oftentimes will will retreat. Um, they'll try to do it all and, and they'll find that they really can't. Um, and yet they're they're reluctant to ask anybody for for help. And meanwhile, the people who are their support circle um, don't really know what to do. They 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 
they want to help, but then they don't want to butt in. Uh, they want to give people space, but they want to be of service. And I think that your your concept of, you know, think about the fact that if the if the shoe was on the other foot, you would so want to help. And and it feels so good to help other people. You just need that that permission to do so. What other advice do you have for people who are trying to kind of navigate these stressful situations and are feeling um, isolated and and truthfully are physically isolated? Um, particularly, I'm thinking more about um, at the end of at the end of life. I mean, we've seen these tragic pictures on the news of of people. With COVID, they may or may not have cancer. They can't have their loved ones around. How do you deal with that? Yeah, in particular in those moments when oftentimes we would really be relying on touch. And touch is so powerful and so healing. But particularly in those moments right now, it's just not possible. Oftentimes people default are defaulting to video. And there's a lot of reasons why we're doing this. Um, and it's helpful oftentimes to be able to see someone else. But we know from a lot of research that voice only, rather than sort of voice and video at the same time, that voice only is much better at conveying emotion and it's much better at conveying empathy. And so it's something to th- think about and keep in mind and perhaps experiment that if you may perhaps have been trying to keep in touch only through video and voice, the video actually can be distracting. Video also can make people much more self-conscious about how they're looking or focused on the situation at hand. And in many ways, it's easier to connect on an emotional level by just hearing someone's voice. It's far more humanizing and it also is able to convey empathy in a way that voice and video at the same time aren't. Wow. I would have never thought that. Um, you know, I, I guess because I always thought about, um, communication, you know, being in part, we, we always think about um, this nonverbal uh, part of communication. But so so the data don't support that that really um, goes towards a, a feeling of, of empathy and connection, huh? Yeah, and there's a, a couple reasons that this is true. So the data seems to suggest that if we're focusing just on emotion and empathy, that voice only tends to be better. Mm-hmm. And part of that, right, our natural tendency is one to default for video. Like we're trying to recreate the thing that feels as close to like normal life as possible. Yeah. But in reality, and the idea is exactly what you said, that the more we can get more nonverbal cues. The problem is that video conferencing is actually pretty bad at conveying nonverbal cues. So if I'm looking at a, I can, I have a choice essentially. I can either look at your eyes or I can look at my webcam and that's signaling a, a signal of distraction. Our eyes also t- tend to gravitate towards mouths instead of eyes in video conferencing. Um, and our ability just to, to convey and read n- nonverbal cues on video is pretty poor. And so that is actually making the cognitive load higher and making it more difficult to connect because we're trying to monitor something that we don't actually have an ability to do well. 
The second piece of this is it also can create barriers to interaction. So if I'm not feeling well one day and, you know, or perhaps I've been through treatment and I'm just also not looking my physical best, I may not want to be seen. And that I, so I may actually avoid interaction in a way through video that I wouldn't otherwise if it were voice only, so just a phone call. And so both from an issue of self-presentation, but also our ability to really hone in on what's going on with someone else the evidence seems to suggest that just hearing voice can be more powerful. That is so, um, so interesting and something that I think a lot of our, our listeners probably didn't know and can really, um, can really benefit um, from. What, what other, what other tips do you have for perhaps healthcare providers and, and connecting with patients? Because, um, this is hard on them as well. I mean, I think everybody right now is going through so much stress. Um, and the idea of, of really kind of trying to step up even more your game as a healthcare provider, you know, normally you're, you're trying to deal with patients. You're, you're trying to get the best outcome for them, um, connect emotionally with them. And now, on top of all of that, you also are dealing with all of your own stresses, right? You're, you're in a COVID rich environment. You've got kids at home who are trying to homeschool. Um, you may have had a partner who, uh, just, uh, lost a job or, um, or whatever. How, what advice do you have for healthcare providers in terms of maintaining their own social connections and, and being there, um, not only for their patients, but, but also for themselves. I think one of the most important things is that to realize is that social connection really happens in the minute. That our quality of our social connections is determined in a very small time scale. Um, and, everyone, right? Whether you're a healthcare provider or you're a patient or you're just a person trying to get through a day-to-day life in COVID, um, everyone's extraordinarily stressed. And particularly if you're in a healthcare setting, you're also extraordinarily busy. And we know from a lot of research, there's a beautiful study that looked at, it's, which is recalled the parable of the Good Samaritan. And they asked people, um, it, what they did is they randomly assigned people to walk by someone who is in need of help. And these were all theologians. And on the one hand, they asked people to either prepare the parable of the Good Samaritan, a, a sermon on it, or something random. And then they were interested in seeing who stopped to help the person in need. And it turned out that it didn't matter, right? If they had prepared the, and thought about the parable of the Good Samaritan or they had read something random, what mattered the most was whether or not that they were told to hurry, when that they were in a hurry when we, they were walking by the person in need on the way to another building. And I think that's true for all of us in the moment. That It was really the people who were, were not told to hurry that stopped to help. And our ability to help one another and also help ourselves depends on being able to be present in a really small period in the moment, to be able to make eye contact when we can, to be able to simply be heard and listen to another po- person. And it doesn't take a lot of time. Everything we know from research is that it doesn't matter whether or not you're spending an hour a day connecting with people or simply five minutes. It's really the quality of that moment that matters for everyone's health and well-being. Dr. Marissa King is a professor of organizational behavior at the Yale School of Management. 
If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.